no mai haere mai, my name's Jeremy, and this is the Maximum Institute Podcast. This month, we've got a great conversation for you on free speech, hate speech, and the way we work out our ideas in real life and in the digital space. Over the last 18 months, the intertwined issues of free speech and hate speech have loomed large in our national conversation through a number of difficult, awful, and sometimes downright farcical situations. I had the pleasure of hosting this conversation between Alex Pink and David Hall in front of a live crowd at a pub in central Auckland. Towards the end of the podcast, you'll hear both speakers responding to questions from our audience. And if you'd like to be part of our live audience for a future conversation like this, make sure you head to our website and sign up to find out more. For now, let's get to the good stuff. Now, it's my privilege tonight to introduce our speakers. Um, Our first speaker is Dr. David Hall, um, who is a senior researcher at the Policy Observatory in AUT. Um, David has just returned from a period of time overseas. David has previously studied um, a DPhil at um, at Oxford University in politics, uh, and he is regularly seen on Twitter trying to plead for reasoned debate uh, in all aspects. I look at him and I go, oh, David, you are the best of us. You're doing so well, um, trying to stop everyone from being crazy. David has uh, been really keen on, um, on kind of talking about these ideas of hate speech and free speech and and good political discussion uh, in New Zealand, particularly since um, the Christchurch attacks in March. Um, slightly less successfully on Twitter, but definitely still on Twitter is Alex Pink. Just gets slightly less engagement, but hey, follow him, um, and, and and you can see that change. Uh, Alex is the CEO of Maxim Institute. Alex, uh, previously before being the CEO, was a policy manager. He was also a researcher, and in a previous life, he was a lawyer um, until he did a Master of Laws at Cambridge and thought, nah, I've got to the zenith of that, so I'll chuck it in for the nonprofit life. So Alex has got a, a deep interest in this subject as well. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Over the last 18 months, you probably would have noticed, hence probably why you're here, that the intertwined ideas of free speech and hate speech have popped up again and again um, through some awful, horrible, and to be honest, farcical situations in New Zealand public life. Uh, And often there has been, and since then, and and all through that time, there has been a lot of conversation around um, legislation, free speech, how much of it is too much, uh, whether we need extra laws to to deal with uh, hateful speech in New Zealand. And so what I might do is just start with a question that both of our panelists love. Why why free speech? Uh, Why do we value it as a society? What has it offered to us um, in the past to the point where it's actually given us, uh, where we have developed this value for free speech as kind of a, a, a guiding value of a, a democratic society? We talked about whether we should play rock, paper, scissors to see who, uh, who answers the question first. I'm happy to, or I'm happy for you to take a shot, David? Uh, I'll, I'll take a shot. I mean, I, I'll give a philosophical answer because that's my particular background. Free speech is kind of one of these paradoxical ideas in a way because you know I have free speech in the sense that I could say anything to you right now (laughs) I you know you know the words that I could emit out of my mouth I could say the most craven or coarse or insulting or horrible thing in this in this moment this is a potential which is sitting there but I don't um you know I have that potential but I regulate myself for all sorts of reasons, for um, politeness, you know, what I think is decent. I don't want to insult people. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. There's all sorts of regulations that I impose on myself, and there's all sorts of norms that I expect in the room in which I, um, you know, willingly navigate. Uh, There's all sorts of um, methodological questions and questions about 
reality and belief. Um, you know, I work in a university, so we're constantly regulating our own speech depending on whether it's consistent with um, principles of logic, principles of ethics, whether um, it's consistent with bodies of evidence or relevant literatures. So there's all sorts of ways that I regulate myself in that, in that way as well. The real question for, for liberalism is, is the question of um, how other people interrupt and impose their own sense of what is appropriate and, and inappropriate speech. That can happen at the level of civil society in the way that we as citizens and as peers and colleagues discuss issues and debate with one another and communicate to each other about what we think is appropriate or inappropriate. But then there's also the question of the state and, and what place it has in imposing its sensibility about, about what should and shouldn't be said, um, especially through law and, and the power of the law and its, its capacity for, for punishment, especially. And, you, you know, the his, history of liberalism, I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of contemporary debate around free speech takes its cues from John Stuart Mill, who, who took a very minimalist position on this, and, and he argued that we really should be free to do as as much as we as much as we should as as much as we wish to um, with the limit of um, that we're not interfering in other people's uh, capacity to also act and speak um, freely and so it was very he, he very much had an idea of liberty and and freedom as as non-interference and for him the only grounds on which um, we shouldn't be acting in accordance with our desires and our wants and our interests are in ways which cause harm to other people. And so that, for him, was the ultimate trade-off, the harm principle. But his is not the only vision of, of what it is to be a, a free person. There's, there's other visions, um, such as coming from the Republican tradition, which is, you know, to be a free person and to, to have liberty is to not be dominate, dominated by other entities or actors and so so that's another way of considering it in in Maori culture you know there's ideas of the um, how you speak at the marae and the protocol of the marae atia is is you know it accepts that speech and conversation can be combative but it also says that we have to balance that with our relationships to each other and that and that, that sort of combative um, quality of debate shouldn't be deteriorating our relationships with others. And so, so one of the questions from li for, for liberalism is, is not just how to enable us to express and exercise our freedoms as, as much as possible, but also to create space for these different ways of um, balancing these trade-offs. So I think I learned right at the start of that that David's just holding himself back from speaking in a in a craven, coarse, or, or insulting kind of way. So I'm 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 grateful for that self-control, and I hope it holds throughout the night. Uh, yeah, we, we shall see. Um, might depend on whether I say anything suitably outrageous. But I think my my starting point for thinking about this: why is free speech valuable? Why does it matter? Uh, so my answer to that would be I think that free speech uh, helps us search for truth and for meaning so that we can order our lives in accordance with that truth and that meaning. And I think free speech contributes to that search for truth in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, it gives us the opportunity to be uh, exposed to ideas. If we don't have that exposure, we, we can't learn what might be true. Um, so that's, that's the first and kind of most obvious way in which free speech helps us. Um, but there's another issue, which is that 
And I'm going to borrow this argument from uh, Professor Robert George, um, who's at Princeton University. But he makes the point that when we have uh, heard um, a whole lot of ideas, a whole lot of speech, we come to a, a settled set of beliefs. These are the things we believe about the world, the things that we believe to be true. Now, one of the things that we probably believe to be true is that we're not right about everything. So we know that some of the things that we believe are wrong. But we don't know which things those are, because if we knew they were wrong, we wouldn't believe them. So we need other people to help us understand what we're wrong about. And that's one of the really important exercises of free speech, to listen to other people who are going to expose the errors in belief that you hold, who are going to challenge the things that you believe to be true, the things that you may hold really, really dear. And in that process, they help you move closer to truth. Um, another concept that I find really helpful for thinking about the value of speech is, is a concept of anti-fragility, which uh, is um, explained really well in a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, um, which was published end of last year or start of this year, I think. But it's basically the idea that, that some things in life are fragile. They break easily. Um, some things in life are resilient. They can withstand shocks. Some things in life are anti-fragile. They require challenge in order to grow, to learn, to adapt, to become stronger. And I think speech is one of those things. It's one of those challenges that helps us to learn, adapt, and grow. And if we're not being exposed to challenging speech, we don't have the opportunity for growth. So I think you know part of the answer to that question is just there's an inherent challenge um, which carries a certain amount of discomfort with it. Um, and I think you have to acknowledge can carry a certain amount of cost with it. Um, but that's, that's the sort of mindset that I bring into thinking about these things. And it's probably helpful to try and move from kind of, you know, abstract ideas like this into some of the kind of uh, more practical and more applied kind of issues that we have to deal with. So for example, when I think about something like uh, Whitcall's deciding not to stock Jordan Peterson's book earlier this year, the book 12 Rules uh, for Life, I come to that kind of thing thinking, oh, it's really important that we are actually being um, challenged in how we think. Now, for the record, I am not a fan of Peterson's book. Um, I think it's a uh, mixed bag, to put it uh, politely. Um, but I, uh, I'm going to see if I can provoke a bit of uh, debate with David here. I think, I think Whitcall's made the wrong decision. Um, and I think the decision that they made um, is not consistent with this idea that we actually need to be challenged by ideas that we uh, may find really difficult uh, to deal with. Um, I'll stop there and give David a chance to tell me if he thinks uh, I'm wrong before I sort of go too far down the track and explain my, my full reasons for thinking that. But David, what do you think? Well, I mean, I mean, Whitcall's put the book back onto the um, shelves. And I think, I mean, the, the issue is here, um, this is one of the contradictions of liberalism is that um, on the one hand, you want as many perspectives as possible, as, as you said. Um, and, the, and then the other question is that, you know, you know private organisations such as a company needs to have its control over its own decisions about what to sell and not. And these two, two things can sometimes come into conflict and, and run off in different directions. To, to use the, the, the million principle of non-interference, to come in and say that Whitcalls has to stock... Uh, uh, Jordan Peterson's book, whether they want to or not, um, that is potentially an infringement on on their rights as a business to to make those decisions. Uh, and so this is just, 
one of these examples of where these um, the, these tensions, these same te- driven by the same principle, can can nevertheless end up in a place where they contradict one another. And I think, I mean, to me, the, the book may have ended up back on the shelves, but the interesting thing is that they took it off in the first place. And and I certainly wouldn't argue that they have to stock the book. Um, but I think, to me, one of the interesting things here is often when we talk about these issues of free speech and hate speech and so on, we're talking we're talking about quite different things. And we're often talking in a sort of general kind of, what's the cultural context around these things? And I think of a decision like the one that Whitcall's made, where it's it's you know, perfectly possible to push back on that and say, so what if Whitcalls took the book off the shelf? You could buy it on Book Depository or Amazon or Mighty Ape or probably Paper Plus or, or, or anywhere. There's like, there's lots of places, right? So really has speech been infringed here? But I think the thing that I find most interesting about this is what's the kind of the social signal that an action like that sends? Because when we're thinking about these issues, I don't think it's enough just to think strictly in terms of, you know, the text of the Bill of Rights Act, what's legally enforceable, what's not legally enforceable. There's also sort of a whole social context to this uh, that we need to be mindful of, of as well, which is much harder to uh, to define and, and to wrestle with. I think I might just uh, pop in there um, because you guys have almost chewed up through the entire first section on the first question. But I just, um, talking about the social kind of cost of these things, um, bringing in the second half of um, the cunningly and unfairly devised title, Free Speech versus Hate Speech, um, I just would love you guys to talk a little bit about, about hate speech and the idea of what hate speech means in our public discourse at the moment. It is sort of a woolly, it can, can be a term that is ill-defined, um, but in terms of how you've seen it um, used uh, increasingly over the last 18 months or so, what is hate speech? Why, uh, you know, wh- why, do we, why do we call certain speech hate speech and is it a, is it a problem in New Zealand? Hate speech is one of these um, ill-defined terms, and I think it probably needs to be as well, because I think um, it's something that we're going to be constantly debating about what is and isn't hateful, what is and isn't harmful. And, you know, at the civil level, we need to have an open, fluid, flexible interpretation of what that means, I think, because issues change and sensitivities change and people do change their perspective on what on what is and isn't um, fitting into a category like this. So I don't necessarily think it's a, a, a strong basis for law making. And I think most of what is called hate speech law actually doesn't specifically use that language. It, it talks much more about specific things under that wider umbrella, such as incitement to violence or, or racial disharmony and so on and so forth. And I think that's vital, um, that, that really we always need to come back to those definitions, those legal definitions, and, and whether it's those particular definitions which are working, um, and whether they are enforceable, and whether they are having perverse effects, and not that umbrella term under which all of these fall under. Is is there a problem of, of hate in, in New Zealand? I mean, I, I think, you, you know, this is, a, this is an issue that I think... Um, that, that I have to be humble and and in in my opinion because you know I I am not subjected with a lot of the harassment and abuse that does go on I do see it happening so I do think there is a problem out there I I think there's and and a lot of this is manifesting in different ways as public 
engagement and public uh, discourse, is, it moves online. You know, there's all sorts of issues which we'll probably get to later about uh, the dynamics of online discourse and people's potential to speak in ways that they wouldn't necessarily face to face. I certainly know that there there are people facing who, who are enduring a lot of um, hateful rhetoric out there and there's questions about how we manage that and I think um, one of the things which I see as a deficiency in the way that we talk about this is, is not enough distinction about the state level responses and the, and the civil society level responses. I think often the debate just immediately shifts the hate speech laws and whether those are appropriate as, as if that those are the only responses that we can do. But, but there's an enormous amount of work that can be done at the civil society level, um, which I think is really vital because we're not bringing in the heavy hand of the state and we're not bringing in um, those, those dangers of imprisoning people for, for um, unreasonable things and we're, we're not kind of bringing in all of these legal specificities about whether, you know, you know, whether a certain phrasing falls on one side of the law or, or the other. And I, and I would like to see New Zealand doing a lot more around looking at um, yeah, ways that different civil society groups can be, um, can, can be engaging with these things, different support for marginalised groups which are facing that, different strategies being taught in schools, especially as you know our youth are, are, are having to teach themselves how to navigate the online space because you know older people are not necessarily um, any any better or, or have any better sense of how to do that and, and you know we really need to be aware to those sorts of um, dangers. Um, just to pick up on something that you were talking about David but I mean either of you can feel free to go for this uh, what does our law currently say about hate speech and uh, what recourse do we have like what recourse do we have against hate speech at the moment where, where it's found in society picking up on what David was saying before it, it's really important to, to distinguish between when we're talking about hate speech in a kind of general cultural sense which can be as broad as just speech that is kind of disfavored and the legal sense of hate speech, which is uh, really more uh, speech that is um, uh, prohibited or regulated or subject to some kind of penalty. Um, and in New Zealand at the moment, we have uh, quite a few legal provisions that are relevant to hate speech already. Um, so the key kind of ones uh, are found in the Human Rights Act. I'm going to try and not do my sort of formal lawyer thing and, and like go through you know all of this in, in too much detail. But, but very briefly, you've got um, you've got a, a civil uh, provision and a criminal provision, um, which are basically focused around threatening, abusive, or insulting words that are likely to excite hostility uh, or contempt um, towards a group uh, defined by reason of race, colour, ethnic, or national origin. And the, the sort of this the heading for these provisions is around inciting racial disharmony. So you can kind of hear what the thrust of the provision is. Um, one of the really interesting things is that the, the criminal offence um, includes an element the civil provision doesn't. You have to show intention. Now in the civil provision you don't have to show intention. The issue is just would a reasonable person hearing these words think they were threatening, abusive or insulting, regardless of whether or not you intended that. The criminal provision also has the interesting feature that you have to get the Attorney General's consent to a prosecution. And as the uh, potential penalty is three months imprisonment or a fine of, I think, 
$2,000, don't quote me on that. That's a really high bar to set for an offence that actually has a pretty, uh, in the scheme of things, I mean, I don't want to go to prison for three months, but you know, in the scheme of things, a relatively low punishment associated with it. So what we can take from all of that, I think, is that we have some provisions that are relevant to hate speech already. They're fairly narrowly construed. They're structured in such a way that they're actually practically quite difficult uh, to, to prove against somebody. And if you look at, for example, the case of Wall and Fairfax, which Lewis Wall, the politician, um, took a complaint um, about cartoons published by Fairfax Media. Um, so that concerned Section 61 of the Human Rights Act. And the court held to a pretty high standard in terms of what they would think was uh, amounting to hate speech in that kind of scenario and found that those particular cartoons, don't know if you remember them, they employed some, uh, I think, fairly obnoxious uh, racial stereotypes. But the court said, look, this, this isn't, these are offensive, but they're not hate speech. Um, and that's, that's sort of been the balance that our courts have tended to strike in practice. And when I look at the law at the moment, I think my, my sort of conclusion, you know, against the backdrop of thinking, look, what might the government do in this space, is that I don't actually see a need for more provision this, in this area than we already have. And I say that partly because it's not just the provisions in the Human Rights Act. Um, it's also things like people have been convicted for distributing objectionable material when they distributed the video of the, uh, the live stream video of the uh, terror attacks in Christchurch. Um, somebody was sent to prison for 21 months for distributing that video, for example. You might remember there was an attack, uh, a racist um, or a religiously motivated and I think racist attack on a couple of women in Huntley uh, a couple of years ago. And the woman who perpetrated that attack uh, was convicted of assault and I think uh, intent to injure. And there are other examples as well where existing provisions in the criminal law have actually been applied to people carrying out the kind of conduct that we probably think of as motivated by hate or a hate speech uh, kind of offence. That's a relatively long-winded answer, but it's to say that we, we have a certain amount of regulation in this area in New Zealand uh, already. There are ways in which you, you, might, you might tweak that, uh, the government might also come along and say, hey, let's have something entirely new, which could be a completely different kettle of fish. But at the moment, David may be about to try and persuade me otherwise, at the moment I don't see, I don't see the need to add to that. I mean, I think at the core of uh, the, the idea of hate speech or the, that notion that speech can make someone unsafe or feel unsafe is this idea that speech can be violence, um, that it is somewhere along a spectrum or continuum of violence. Um, and so I think that kind of needs to be addressed in this discussion of do you believe that speech can be violence and be a violent act against someone, um, even if they don't go as far as assaulting them um, physically? So I, I, think, I think this can easily be taken too far, and especially I think if we're talking in the legal domain, then I think separations between physical violence and, and some sort of symbolic violence are, are important to retain. At the same time, we need to recognise you know, how hurtful and disadvantaging language can be. I mean, and, and like I said, you know, I'm not necessarily the best person to talk about this, but I am on stage. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I know that like mere words where, where no act can, can be devastating. And for me, the most obvious example was the diagnosis of terminal cancer for my mother. You know, it was just words that were spoken to me with no action or, and, and no, no visible um, expressions of that at all. But it was like, 
the it, it had an immediate physical sensation, which was like being hit in the face and just a sense of shock, a sense of being stunned, you know, the, the, that kind of reaction. And I can and I've seen um, you know language, emails, tweets, so on, being subjected to people um, where you know the humanity is being. Um, denied they're being degraded as a people or you know having threats of violence and I can imagine how these mere words could have a similar effect on somebody and I think you know that needs to be keep kept in the in the um, picture even if we don't define that as violence you, you know that it nevertheless can have that effect and that's you know that just brings back that you know one of these contradictions again that you know you know the freedom of speech um, in in that sense can have a chilling effect in the same way that the law can have a chilling effect on speech, so can other speech have a chilling effect. And and while I cannot, um, you know, speak as someone who's subjected to, to that sort of language, I do am in contact with with groups who are um, talking to some this morning even um, in the Muslim community, and and they just talk about the sense of exhaustion, the sense of fear. Um, after after March fifteenth, especially, and just and and their reluctance to to be in public spaces, you, you know, especially talking about issues like this, and that's partly why I feel you know some responsibility to talk about that because it isn't very fair just to leave leave that um, responsibility and leave that burden to them to to put themselves in a, in a position which makes them feel vulnerable and uncomfortable to talk about some of these issues. Um, and I and I know this. The, the last time I was talking at, at, with Maxim was about a book that I published on immigration policy, and I noticed even then I found it incredibly difficult to get someone with a recent migrant background to talk about um, to to write on these issues because they were completely reluctant to put themselves up and be subjected to to um, harassment online or in the in the public domain. And so 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 this is the this for me is the real issue. It. it it goes back to what Alex said at the start, that we need a diversity of views. And, and how do we strike that balance so that, so that that diversity of views is allowed to uh, be in the public domain? Because that's essential for democracy. And if people are too scared to, to talk publicly and to represent themselves and need to be represented by others, then we, we have a real problem. So, I mean, in this, I mean, in, in what you're saying, it seems, yeah, obviously there's a, you're sort of talking about the legal you know, we're, we're limited in what we can say legally around speech and violence, but there's a, a huge social and cultural interpretation and, and I, I guess the responsibility that you're talking about and articulating really beautifully. What is available to us as a society to counteract hateful speech and, and bring in those sorts of voices and let them know that they're actually, they have an equal place and an equal standing in society and that other people actually care about what is said? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I think one of the first things we need to do is, you know, and I, I think I'm in agreement with David here, that you know, we need to acknowledge there are actually harmful consequences here. There's empirical evidence to the effect that, um, you know, uh, hateful speech produces psychological distress, um, which can have real consequences for people physically and socially. Um, there's also a, a level or an extent to which it goes to, uh, you know, to incitement to, uh, to actual violence as well. Um, when I make the comment that I don't think we need additional law to what we have, I'm not downplaying or minimising that harm in any way. It's more that I'm saying I think the law that we have addresses that harm already. But these are real harms that, that people are facing. And, you know, to me, I, I think it would be nice if there was an easy answer to this. But, the, you know, I don't think there's any utopia uh, that we're going to get to if we, you know, if we just tweak Facebook's algorithm, then we're going to do away with online hate. 
I think to some extent the, the problem is out there, the problem is in humanity, um, and the question is how do we do the best job we can of creating the culture that's going to allow us to respond to those things well. So I think the first thing is, is acknowledging that harm. But the other thing that comes to mind for me is when we're thinking about issues of uh, speech as violence, is, is what's been called this, uh, this idea of a culture of, of safetyism, which is really that we, we have to try not to expose people to, to challenging uh, kind of ideas. And one of the things that struck me is when you look at um, you know, the decisions that Massey University made, uh, first of all in the review that they released where they um, talked about the decision uh, to cancel the event that Dr. John Brash was invited to, um, there was a more recent decision where they cancelled an event uh, that a feminist uh, group was holding at the university. When you read the uh, High Court decision in relation to um, the action taken by uh, representatives of the Free Speech Coalition, in each case, those decisions not to hold events or, or to cancel uh, venue bookings were made on health and safety grounds. Uh, they were made on the basis that um, there is a risk to people in the community, which means that we can't allow these ideas to be expressed. Now, it, it, it's difficult to look behind these factual scenarios. In some cases, those risks may have been really significant and really genuine, although I do find it kind of ironic that if you read the independent report on the, on the Brash decision, it talks about how the university was right to take seriously the threat that somebody posted on Facebook saying we're going to bring a gun to the event. There's nothing in the report about the police ever having investigated that. Um, so I found it kind of ironic that that was a good reason to cancel the event, um, but, but there's no record there that the, uh, that the police sort of followed uh, through on that. But my, my sort of long-winded way of, of getting to an answer here is to say, I think part of what we need to do is create a culture where it's okay to have these discussions, where it's okay to challenge, and where we actually practice what I'd think of as the civic virtue of civility of listening to people who are different to us and respecting them in the process even though we're not going to end up agreeing or we might not think that at the start we may still not agree with them at the end but I think the important thing about uh, free speech is that by itself it's not enough there has to be a willingness to listen that goes along with it as well so that's that's sort of my uh, landing point um, after a little bit of meandering to the uh, to the question that you're asking I think we have to cultivate that posture of being willing to listen to each other including about the most difficult, contentious, uh, messy issues, the ones that, you know, the sort of the third rail issues where, you know, if you talk about them, it might be bad for your career, you might lose friends, uh, or, or whatever the issue might be. We have to do each other the dignity of listening to each other in those, uh, in those conversations. I think what's really interesting about you, what you're saying there, is that normally we think about, you know, we've got to listen to the people who... Uh, have been deplatformed or something like that. But actually, one of the reasons why I think we've gotten ourselves into these situations is because the people who then want to do the deplatforming haven't been listened to for so long. We haven't been listening to minority groups. We haven't been listening to, like you say, immigrant voices in your book. You found it difficult to find someone that actually, it's actually up to the majority of us to let people know that they are listened to and valued. And then it will probably be easier to have that kind of civility in the whole of society because people aren't concerned that their voice and their existence is not valued. Um, so it's a lot of work that you're talking about. And it sounds, it's not, it's very easy to say, oh, let's listen more. But actually spending time and actually and finding places to elevate voices that haven't been, that listening is a, is a huge job. I, I think it's one of those things that's easy to say, but I think it's incumbent on all of us to be willing to put ourselves into situations where we're the uncomfortable one. And I mean, just to give a, you know, in, in the scheme of things, a very small but, but personal example, the previous couple of years, I was doing courses in Te Reo Māori. 
and there were times on that course because you're not just learning a language you're exposing yourself to a, to a culture as well there were times when I felt way out of my comfort zone doing a you know overnight stay on a Madai for example this year I spoke in a porphyry for the first time and I'm kind of like why I'm so uncomfortable doing this why am I doing this so that I learn, so that I grow, so that I understand what it is to be in a situation where I feel deeply uncomfortable and that helps develop in me an empathy for other people when they are in situations where they may feel deeply uncomfortable. I'm not saying that that's equivalent, and in many ways it's a microcosm of what other people experience, but it's one way in which I think you know, we can look for opportunities like that to put ourselves in positions where we have to be exposed to different ideas, different modes of life, and live out that value of being prepared to be uncomfortable ourselves. If we're going to suggest to other people that that's a sort of a norm, a civic norm, then we need to be prepared to do it ourselves too. Um, over the last 18 months, there have been several incidents in uh, New Zealand public life with the um, from the visit of um, Southern and Molyneux uh, through to, as you've discussed, the um, deplatforming of uh, Dr. Don Brash at Massey um, and the Christchurch terror attacks and kind of some of the incidents that happened around that, including uh, someone who went to the site of the, of the attacks a few days later and was sort of talking about what they wanted to do. Um, and sort of initially the police kind of refused to do anything about it, saying they didn't really have any power, which it turned out they did. What do you think the state of play is with these events and the commentary and the kind of political situations that have gone on around them? Uh, what do you think the state of play is with those? Uh, where are we at with um, sort of hate speech and, and law um, and sort of society's attitudes at the moment and, and kind of looking out to the next year or so, where do you think we might be headed? So, so it, it is a little bit difficult to talk about um, legislation which hasn't been proposed and, and set out in text yet. So, um, so that's the starting point. I mean, I, I think two things which seem to be in play as far as the Department of Justice has been considering is one, to, to bring in hate crimes as a specific definition. And so that isn't to do with speech per se, but that's more of a definitional question around motivation. And the other question is whether incitement to violence should be broadened out to um, include not just racial grounds but also grounds of religion, uh, disability, sexuality and, and so on. So, so those seem two likely areas to see um, proposals but it's difficult to talk about them at this stage. And, and for the record I'm, I'm open to the, to the broadening of definition for incitement to violence so maybe that's a point of disagreement. I mean a lot, a lot of countries around um, the world do have that broader suite of, of justification and I, I can see the rationale behind that maybe we can talk about that later there for me as as I alluded to earlier the the big thing is is really engagement with civil society at that level and I think the more that we think about making progress in that space the less we actually need to involve the state and and the hard and often clumsy hand of the law um, and so I think I think that's absolutely vital and I find myself incredibly frustrated sometimes when free speech language is used as a way of sort of censuring or, or policing civil organisations in the way that they are responding and trying to um, engage with these issues because I think that ought to be actually be encouraged because if, if private companies, if communities, if um, you know civil society can't solve these problems themselves, then they're leaving a, a giant vacuum there for the state to fill. And so I think actually, you know, the free speech question really should be primarily focused at that at that state level, and then 
how do we navigate these spaces at that civil society level? And I'm, I have to say, pessimistic about the government's progress after March 15th in that regard. I don't think they've got a good track record. I don't think they're necessarily um, doing much better in the way that um, things are playing out. But we're, 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 again, again, it's a work in progress and, and we need to see how, how that engagement goes. You know, that conversation needs to be articulated and I think the government has a role of providing capability and resources to civil society to play that role better than it does at the moment. As David says, it's, it's really hard to comment on something that we actually haven't seen the detail of yet. You know, the government said we're going we're gonna to fast track the review seven months ago now, I think, which is a relatively slow fast track. But I, to me, one of the, the, the things that I've um, been a little bit concerned about is this idea of a, of a review, fast tracked or not, um, where I, I haven't seen sort of a lot of public commitment to, um, to really engaging a range of voices in that view. Maybe it's going on behind the scenes and, and we just can't see that. Uh, but my concern has been um, that whatever does come out of that review or whatever conversation is happening in the Ministry of Justice at the moment is the kind of thing that could happen in a bit of an echo chamber, um, which would be kind of unfortunate for laws that are supposed to be about you know, that, that balance between the kind of speech we want to protect and the kind of speech uh, we want to, uh, to sort of to regulate um, to some extent. Again, for the record, I mean, my, my position is not that I'd have a big problem with those grounds being added in to broaden the definition. It's more that I actually don't think that that would get, really produce any gains beyond what I think the law um, already covers, and particularly the way that those uh, provisions are, uh, are structured. I, I think the other thing that sort of struck me about your comments, David, was just that, that comment about policing, and I think that's that's a fair point to make, and it's an important one for us to, to think about. But I think it sort of happens on both sides of the spectrum, I think, in, you know, in a mixture of sort of good faith and bad faith. But uh, you, know, you, you get everything from the kind of you know, um, paid speech is not free speech, you know, sort of conflating a couple of different concepts there. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from its consequences. It's like, yes, but at some point the consequences become such that speech isn't really free anymore through to a kind of what I think could be called a caricature, which is, well, I'm able to say anything I want to say because free speech. Now, you know, I, I think, it, honestly, I think it's genuinely hard to find people saying those things Certainly, who are good faith actors, you can always find people on Twitter saying this stuff. But, but you know, it it kind of it kind of it is it is it is out there, and I think we need to be a little bit careful about uh, that kind of rhetoric obscuring and and clouding the debate. I think that's a good point to bring in. Just a question that I have around um, around social media and the digital space. Um, obviously, we are in the we're living in the context of conversations and movements that are happening around hate speech and free speech that are that are a lot of the time happening a lot online. Um, it's particularly um, movements to cancel or deplatform people um, for what they what they're potentially going to say. How do you think that that has changed? The situation and and what what context does that bring to this idea of consequences? Yeah, so I I think so much of the resurgence of of debate around free speech and hate speech and so on is is a reflection of this. the The, the whole architecture is is transforming beneath us. The whole architecture of commu- the the way we communicate with one another, the way we. Um, uh, acquire information the way we we test our ideas it, it's just transformed between beneath our feet in ways that I don't think we fully understand yet I think that a lot of the combativeness is a reflection of that because I think people learning how to engage in online platforms and the mechanisms 
by which they are managing their conversations online, starting to inform the way that they manage offline um, behavior. So for instance, on, on Twitter, if, if you put forward an idea, there's potentially thousands of people who can pile in and, um, and, and harass or, or refute you. And, you know, there's this argument which often comes up that instead of regulating speech, we need more speech, you know, that we need to engage the people who are challenging us. You know, if you were to t- do that realistically on Twitter, you would spend your whole life there engaging with all sorts of actors from all parts around the world who you don't know what context they're coming from. You don't know their level of understanding of the question. You don't know whether they're being sincere or insincere. Um, it, it's just a... Uh, a prescription that just doesn't work because of the particular dynamics of the platform. What does work is blocking people or muting people or, in other words, deplatforming people. And that's, that's the mechanism by which Twitter has provided you to manage those conversations. And so it's hardly surprising, I think, in a way that like, people are finding that as, um, you, you know, a mechanism by which to manage these challenging conversations in the real world as well. Um, and, and, you know, I think there, there's obviously problems um, with that, although I think, you know, you know that, is, that is a mechanism by which we can use at the civil society level to, to manage these issues. You know, people don't have a right to speak in any particular premises, um, you, you know, and, and free speech is not necessarily violated by withdrawing a platform. You know, it, potentially if lots of different premises are, are withdrawing their platform, then, um, you know, one's exercise of, the, of their speech is, is diminished or, or degraded. But, yeah, I mean, I mean th- these questions of the platform are fascinating. I mean, the Southern and Molyneux thing is another example where, you know, how can you talk about them um, having their speech, uh, their right to free speech violated when they, you know, they've got this amazing platform on, on YouTube and, and Twitter and so on with millions of listeners and anybody can go at any time and engage with their ideas on that platform. It's much more of a question of which are the, which are the premises and which are the, um, which are the norms and values behind each of these different kinds of platforms. I think that's one of the concerns about that whole situation is that in a way that it became clear that they've actually figured out how to weaponize that kind of cancelling, you know, deplatforming culture to amplify their own um, their own profile. Um, and in a way, in a perverse way, it kind of just ap- absolutely rebounded on people who didn't want, you know, it's the Streisand effect, right? Um, and so figuring out how to properly engage and in which, and, and strangely enough, like actually a an in-person speech in front of whoever actually thought that they would pay for a ticket and turn up to a theatre um, is actually a much more contained place for uh, ideas that you find hateful and horrible than you know an interview with Patty Gower on on NewsHub. I'm sure lots of people are watching Patty Gower, but I mean I think I think that's true. I mean you see the same thing happening with Jordan Peterson. Say I mean he has hundreds of thousands of people watching him on YouTube. So in the scheme of things, it probably doesn't hurt him too much if he gets deplatformed here and there, and, and, and in fact probably helps him. And I think that just sort of goes to the to the complexity of these kinds of issues as well. But I mean I find I find the online thing really interesting. So Mark Zuckerberg gave a speech recently at Georgetown University, kind of setting out Facebook's current position on free speech. And to be honest, I, I thought, okay, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, free speech, I'm, I'm skeptical before I even start reading the speech. I'm a Facebook skeptic. I deleted my account three years ago. You all should too. <laughs> Although you should also follow Maxim Institute's Facebook page. So maybe, 
follow the page and then delete your account. But I, but I found that you know, Facebook was mostly drivel and, and cat videos. So, so I, I kind of, I went into this expecting to, to kind of disagree with whatever I heard from Mark Zuckerberg and actually, and actually found myself kind of thinking, I, I actually think what he's saying here is, is pretty good and it makes quite a lot of sense. And it's the idea that, I and mean, yes, there's all this stuff in here about voice and Facebook, you know, is all about connecting people and, you know, take that with uh, a few um, ladles of salt, I think. But, but there's, there's sort of a point in there about the fact that these are ways in which people can actually hear directly from a source. So the particular kind of controversy with Facebook recently has been saying, we're going to allow politicians to run ads on Facebook that are not going to be fact-checked. Um, whereas other other parties' uh, content will be will be fact checked, and a lot of people were like, "Well, that's that's terrible," particularly in the U.S. context. Um, and you know, in in the approach that Zuckerberg was laying out was to say, "Look, if somebody is identified as a public figure like that, we'll let them say what they are going to say, so the public can engage directly with that. They can engage with each other. If somebody's a kind of a, a fake account or can't be verified or whatever, we'll shut down that account." Um, but I actually thought, to me, that that makes a lot of sense because often we, we look at these kinds of issues and you sort of assume that when you come in with, with a, a regulation or in this case a fact check that you've somehow solved the problem, but often all you've done is shift the problem. And to give a kind of, in this, again, in the scheme of things, kind of trivial example, um, there was a situation uh, a year or so ago um, there's a website called the Babylon Bee, which is a kind of Christian satirical website. And, and they published a post which said CNN publishes, uh, sorry, purchases industrial-sized washing machine to spin facts into news. And, you know, and Snopes picks up on this and says, fact checked, false, CNN did not purchase an industrial-sized washing machine <laughs> to spin facts into news. Uh, and, you know, it's obviously false, right? But, but if, if somebody can kind of look at something like that and go, oh, that needs to be flagged up as false, you kind of go, how much, who guards the guardians? How much do we trust the fact checkers? And so again, I think um, the, these sort of issues of uh, just going another regulation or another law is the way to solve this. Um, and you know, David's been making the point, we have to think about sort of civil society mechanisms. I, I think is a much more fruitful kind of path for us to go down. And I think a lot of it also comes down to getting off the online world and into the uh, offline world. Um, and you know, I think we can, if we pass laws but still live in bubbles, then things aren't gonna change very fast. So I think I've found a point where I finally disagree strongly. <laughs> I thought Zuckerberg's speak was, it was horrendous. And, and I think it really reflects um, his, his own poverty of thinking around this, I think. The, 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 the missing bit of this is the, is the business model itself behind it. I mean, he is now one of the most rich people in the world, and, and the reason for that wealth is, is the advertising revenue that is generated by people spending as much time on Facebook as possible and engaging as much as possible. And, and the problem is that those lies and the controversial claims are exactly what keep, keep people hooked because they're the ones that people most have these um, debates and spend the most time on there um, debating about and having these fruitless back and forth arguments you're appealing to one another's fact checkers and so, and so on. And, and, and I think that that, that, that idea that just more information and just a greater thoroughfare and that free speech ought to be the, 
you, you know, that, that ideal for them is, is highly problematic because all of our communications technologies in the past have had all sorts of processes in place to ensure that, you know, there's real people behind claims and that they're willing to stand there for, stand, stand for them. But, you know, anonymity is one of these big problems with, with the online space and what people can say. And, you know, there's peer review processes and, and all sorts of... Um, processes in there to make sure and and editorial processes that the you know our old traditional media which is vanishing before our eyes um you know makes decisions and that helps us to to navigate all of the information and i think that's the difference between information and communication i think if we're just talking about free expression and that being the only concern i think we get a flood of information but we don't have any way of communicating necessarily and ensuring that you know what has been said has been understood what's been said is trustworthy and reliable I just can't take him seriously unless unless he's starting to talk in that language of thinking about all of the other norms which are in play there and and I don't trust you know while I am um keen to see civil society and organizations managing them the, 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 themselves, I don't see Facebook and Twitter and, and Google and so on um, self-regulating in that way because they're now locked into um, a business model, permanent e expansion up to you know, the population of the world, driven by this engagement. And, and the problem is, and it comes back to the civility, that they make money out of in civil discourse. They make money out of this out of controversy and you know they've done these um, analysis of the sort of emotional content of, of language and, and it's anger by far and away is the most prevailing emotion and you just it's just an awful situation where more and more of our public conversation is going on to a platform which rewards anger as its primary motive I mean you know how are we ever going to have civil conversations if that's what's been um, put at the front and, and, you know, always been shuffled up to the top of the list. And, it, you know, I really share, like, a lot of your concerns about that incivility. I come from it, the, um, a, a lovely definition by Chantal Mouffe between um, agonistic, antagonistic um, politics, where, you know, agonistic is, is good for democracy. We treat each other as adversaries. And, and we combat and we challenge ideas, but it's always in the idea of an adversary where we have some respect for one another as adversaries and as worthy opponents in a debate. But the, the trouble is when that tips over into antagonistic, where we treat one another as enemies, and instead of having respect for one another in, in that debate, we, we try to vanquish one another and we try to destroy one another. And I think that that is unfortunately the kind of dynamic that um, a lot of online platforms reward and prioritise. Actually, I think disappointingly, we probably agree about quite a lot of stuff again. Um, so, I mean, my, my point isn't, isn't that I think Facebook's model is, is a good one, which is why I deleted my account three years ago. Yeah. But, um, and, and I think, you know, there, there are good reasons to think that, um, yes, the model is designed to enrich Mark Zuckerberg and others by, um, you know, by sucking our attention um, with technology that is designed to kind of uh, tap into sort of addictive um, loops in our brains. Um, so my point was more about the content of his speech and how that translates into practice is, is obviously a, a different question. Where I think he did have um, a point that, that I agreed with was the sense that we actually need to hear from the people, in this case political actors, who are actually shaping political discourse and who are ultimately making the political decisions that are going to affect our lives. But one of the other things that I, that I thought, um, just sort of listening to you 
uh, to speak about this was um, actually something that I read from um, from Grant Huscroft, who taught me when I was at Auckland University and is now a judge uh, in Canada, actually. Uh, but he sort of makes the point that the way that you think about these issues often comes down to a question of faith, i.e. how much faith you have in the government or a regulator to be the one who comes along and competently sort of manages the tensions and the trade-offs that are at play, um, or how much faith you have in civil society or perhaps in a, in a conception of truth to sort of out itself through the through the free exchange of ideas and I think that that kind of um, that norm that we bring to these kind of conversations actually sort of subconsciously shapes a lot of the decisions uh, or a lot of the conclusions that we come to when we're thinking about things like can we trust the fact checkers and my bias I guess is that uh, I tend to distrust concentrations of power uh, because I think power is open to abuse so I look at a company like Facebook and think they've got a heck of a lot of power that's very easy to abuse and I tend to be fairly skeptical but that's why I like the idea of them not fact-checking politicians because I think well at least then you can hear what the politicians have to say without somebody like Facebook inserting themselves uh, in the middle of that uh, of that conversation. A couple of questions actually have broadly um, talked about the kind of gatekeepers of who can or cannot and just referring to Facebook talking before funnily enough Facebook has funneled a whole bunch of the advertising money away from our journalists and media um, who have operated as you say under the editorial kind of responsibility um, to present truth and present debate and discussion in society and now uh, moving towards a more commercial model where, you know, the, the sort of recourse that people take is to ask, like, say, Whitcalls to take Jordan Peterson's book off the off the shelves or to ask Massey University to remove access to a venue or ask the Auckland Council, the same thing. Um, and these decisions then get made by, like, a marketing executive if it's a company, you know, like, can we take the heat for this decision is, or is it just not worth it? Well, is it profitable? Or can we write this off as a health and safety concern? How would you like to see organisations taking on that role of being a, an actor in civil society and actually advancing these discussions rather than just sort of shutting them down if they can't sort of take the heat? Well, what I would like to see is the capacity to actually see what these organisations are doing and how they're making the decisions. I mean, that's the big problem at the moment is that there's a complete lack of transparency about this. Those big social media companies I, I know do have bodies that make these decisions around this and uh, all, all told they're very intelligent and thoughtful people but they're not they're making decisions with massive implications for democracy and they're making decisions in a completely undemocratic way and the thing with democracy is that you need some kind of alignment between means and ends if you're aiming for democratic ends then you need some democratic means to to bring that into into fruition and so I think that's the key issue is is transparency is vital and of course that is is going to be very difficult to extract from these companies because of their um you know, global power and their their commercial interests and their and their strange positioning. You, you know, they they think of themselves as states with legis legislative bodies. You know, they are taking on those responsibilities. They see themselves as as taking on those responsibilities, um, but they're not um, operationalizing them in in the way that we ought to expect them. But it's not just the social media companies as well. I mean, it came up earlier the health and security issue, and and this being a way of avoiding the difficult and you know really possibly helpful conversations that we could be having you know it's no coincidence that you know not only is Massey appealing to health and, and security
security or, or safety as as a reason to withdraw a platform from you know certain speakers. That's the same with regional Auckland facilities, and and we're all left none the wiser because the ethical underpinning of these questions is how we make that balance between freedom of expression and you know freedom from discrimination or or the right to have equal dignity. You know these things that may or may not be in danger, and so we're not getting a chance to have those conversations about what Auckland City thinks about how to, how to strike that balance. And, that, and that's, it's precisely through having that conversation that you know, us as a community and a society would, would start to become more articulate about, about these questions and how we balance them. When you say we, we're not having a chance to have those conversations, I think we are. Like, I mean, they're discussed ad nauseum sort of amongst people and in the media and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, I, I guess you're sort of going, you're saying you want the, the organization itself to have to have that conversation. You know, how would, how would an, like, should it be happening through the courts? Should it be happening, you know, like, I mean, how publicly should an organization have to have that conversation? In, in, in their justifications for what they're doing as an organisation, you know, I don't think that regional Auckland facilities as, a, as an organisation, they don't have an obligation to host anything from anybody. They've pulled that particular, in the Southern and Molyneux case, they've, they've pulled that particular event from happening for health and security reasons. That's the issue. I mean, like the, the mayor said it was on the grounds of protecting a multicultural inclusive city and that's the sort of moral justification which may or may not have underpinned regional Auckland facilities decision we we found out through the courts that wasn't he did he didn't make the call it was already made and so you, you know what is it a potential interesting ethical debate has turned into this procedural issue around whether or not regional Auckland facilities has is subject to public review on on its decision making <laughs> it, it, it just kind of it, it stonewalls and completely displaces the conversation about which, which was the debate that everyone wanted to have some clarity around yeah I mean it, there's a big challenge here I think in trying to talk about these things in hopefully a reasonably intelligent way I mean I, I said before I thought Whitcalls made the wrong decision pulling Jordan Peterson's book I'm making assumptions about the reasoning you know, behind that based on snippets of things that you can glean from the media rather than a sort of fully reasoned position on that that I've that I've seen but that's that's about the best that you can do and I think to, to me I'd also like to go upstream and just think it seems to me that there's a more general kind of issue with our approach to health and safety and it's not just around issues of free speech but there's sort of a mindset of since the law was changed a few years ago that this is just a very difficult area in which people tread very very gingerly and for so long as that's the case I think that's going to have that's going to continue to have impacts in this kind of issue and yeah in this kind of area and we have to think about that as a part of the framing in which these conversations take place as well. When does listening to a broad range of views trip us over into entertaining bigotry and giving hate a potentially dangerous following? I think, I mean, you know, I think that's a question of degree. It's it's one that's hard to answer in the abstract. Really, it depends on who are the speakers and and what are they actually saying. Is what they're saying saying genuinely bigoted and genuinely hateful? If it is, you'll probably be able to tell. Um, but it's a difficult question to answer in the abstract because context matters. And you, I mean, you actually see this overseas sometimes, you know, where there are, I was I'm trying to remember what the example was that I was reading, but where um, in a country where they were engaged in a, in a civil war and, and one side was saying certain things about the other, which might have sounded kind of innocuous, but were basically a sort of a, a call to genocide. And the other side was saying, you know, same sort of innocuous sounding things, which were a call to genocide against the other side. So to some extent, you actually just have to engage with the context rather than answer the question in 
the abstract. I think what I'd like to see is the the widest possible approach, the most generous approach we can take to engaging in those kind of things. Listen to the people, decide whether or not they're bigoted or hateful, rather than shut them down in case they are. Your panel lacks diversity, and by virtue of that, you're exclusionary. Why should white men determine the parameters of freedom of speech? <laughs> Which of us white men should answer first? <laughs> Well, I've tried, I've tried to do my best to um, acknowledge that obvious problem <laughs> throughout the conversation, and I'm not sure what I could do. I, th- I, th- I think actually one of the key issues here is, is, is representation and, and try, to, try to create opportunities to allow others to represent themselves, but also to earnestly try and represent other people's views as, particularly, as, as, as well as one can, and, and to acknowledge the... The short, the inevitable shortcomings of of that because of you know one's own experiences and 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 life, but um to do the earnest best, and I think, I mean that that's what a lot of these political institutions like representative democracy try to achieve is that somebody has the job of of doing that um of being present on behalf of others in a in a in a public debate and and like I said earlier to to some extent I think. You know, while people are feeling raw and, and endangered by some of the change and disruption and, and especially, you know, the really visceral tragedy of March 15th. And I think, you know, there is a responsibility for people to, to take up some of that and to represent as best that they can while acknowledging that they can never convey authentically that particular perspective. I think I'd, I'd want to sort of both reject in part and affirm in part the, the implicit critique there. The rejection, I think, would be we're not determining the parameters of free speech. We're two guys sitting here giving our opinions. And I'd, I'd go back to what I said at the start about what I think the value of free speech is. Hopefully it's a way of uh, moving us closer to an understanding of what's true, what has value um, and I think if the conversation has done that, then, then I think it's actually it's moved positively in that direction. To the extent that I'd accept it, I'd say if we were having a conversation which was about determining the parameters of free speech, I think that's an entirely valid critique. And it's, it's actually basically the same critique that I've made of what I can see of the process that the government is running. So I kind of want to elevate the critique and say, again, my concern is that the government is going to make decisions on this that happen in more or less an echo chamber without the diversity of views that I think actually need to be brought to this issue. That's where the parameters of free speech will be determined in a consequential kind of way. And that's where I think it really, really matters that we actually engage uh, a range of people, which at the moment I don't see happening. How can civil society adequately moderate hate speech when it lacks the strong arm of the law? I think like one of the key things is just having conversations with other people. I mean, like I've done a lot of work in the immigration policy space and this was one of the big learnings I was especially in the in the UK at the time in the in the lead up to Brexit and and you know some of the best organizations that were thinking about this like a think tank British Future did a lot of really great work around this because they were very conscious that issues like immigration and, and multiculturalism were, were blowing up into these hugely politically volatile issues. And, and, you know, they always said, you know, you just can't go into these with trying to shut people down and trying to bombard people with facts and trying to browbeat them into telling them that they're being racist or telling them that they're, you know, that they're being exclusionary or xenophobic and so on. Like, it just doesn't, the, the conversation just dries up. There needs to be some some dialogue and some appreciation that people have genuine fears and genuine anxieties about social and economic issues, even if 
even if their understanding of the causes and the effects might not be might not be right, they um they, you know they nevertheless come into these issues with genuine heartfelt concerns that need to be at least acknowledged as the as the basis and the starting point for any sensible conversation from which anyone might make any kind of movement in a direction. If you come to it in that antagonistic sense, then 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 people aren't going to move at all. I think I think that's the question. I mean, how you operationalize that is is tricky because again, we can't leave it to marginalized groups or or people who are being targeted by by hate and racism to do that work of trying to you know, make their own case and, and make the case for their own equal standing in a society, um, you know, that's not fair burden and, and there's, you know, there's genuine risks involved in that. And so, so again, it comes down to this question of how we operationalise it, how we share that labour and that civil effort and, you know, again, how can the government help to create capability building for, for that civil society movement and, and perhaps some tools. If it is fine to take away the publicly funded venues for the public use, to hear speeches by certain speakers, does that mean that Thug's veto is an acceptable style of suppression of subjectively disagreeable speech? So what I understand Thug's veto to mean is, is sort of if you threaten violence, that triggers a health and safety concern such that the, the speech is going to be shut down. No, I don't think it's acceptable to threaten violence such that events can't go ahead um, that otherwise would have gone ahead and I think you know it goes back to that sort of massy decision about brash that I was talking about earlier when you say there was when you see there was a um, a record of a threat made on Facebook about somebody bringing a gun and that's why that was sort of the, the trigger for the event not going ahead no I don't I don't see that as acceptable we obviously have to wrestle through in each particular situation if there's a threat, what is the level of threat? How credible is it? How are we going to respond? What kind of risks are we willing to take? Because there can be real consequences. Um, there was a, an incident at um, Middlebury College in, in the US a couple of years ago where a, a conservative speaker and the progressive professor who was hosting him were both assaulted by demonstrators on their way to the, the lecture venue. And as I understand it, the, the professor who was hosting the event, she was quite seriously injured and um, sustained a concussion, which took a couple of years uh, to come right. So there, there are, you know, there can genuinely be serious consequences for people who are willing to, to front these kinds of events, and we have to be mindful of that. On the other hand, if you're willing to sort of, you know, at the first concern about health and safety, draw a line under things and say, no, we, we can't go there, then I think you find yourself in a place you really don't want to go. And, and again, one of the things that's striking about the High Court's decision on the uh, Regional Facilities Auckland case is, you know, the, the venue manager basically just saying, um, you know, to be honest, I just didn't want the risk. I didn't want to risk being prosecuted for something, for a health and safety kind of issue. And his uh, contact at the police saying, yeah, cancelling the thing is probably the easiest way to resolve it. I suggest that's not really the outcome we want. Uh, you talked about real-life fora being more contained than online fora. I would argue that they're probably more potent for radicalization and organization in real life of harmful social agents and views. Is this a good reason to allow more censorship of actual real-life situations than online ones? I'm not sure what censoring online situations look like, but I'm going to out myself as somebody who reads Brene Brown from time to time. So Brene Brown says, you know, it's hard to hate close up. So yeah, I mean, you can organize people and, and you, to achieve um, bad ends uh, in, in real life. One, I think that becomes a lot less likely when you sit down and you you know see that you have so much in common with people who may appear to be different to you. I think that becomes a lot less likely in the first place. 
also, you know, glass half full. You can use that same kind of ability to, to organize, to coordinate, to, um, to join in kind of shared ends with people for, for positive ends as well. And I think we've got to be really careful not to kind of shut down that kind of interaction or that kind of organization out of the fear that something will go wrong and lose all of the positive results that could come with it. I, I, I think what I take from that question was that it was a, something about countering violent extremism and, and extremist groups and that they, they exist both online and offline and that their organization exists on, on both levels. And I, I think when we think of it in those terms, we see that states do indeed um, invade and censor and interfere in those organizations if they have the motivation to and so on in the UK that that is extremely robust procedure and has led to all sorts of overreaches the um, prevent program is a really shining example of a route not to go down I should say actually I was thinking as well when you said hasty procedure after March 15th I mean like ours is is so prudent compared to Australia which you know responded by putting a law in place and I think in a matter of days a piece of legislation which just looks like an absolute nightmare and is um going to be causing all sorts of legal problems in the in the future and and scope for state overreach but yeah I mean the the, the problem is that these organizations do exist both online and offline they're extremely opportunist and if they do get shut out of the online space which a lot of them seem to see as inevitable then you know they will find ways of coordinating once again offline I mean but I think states need to look at both forms of um of of organization and and I think that they do um last question we have time for tonight uh David and Alex you mentioned that you'd like to see civil society really engaging with and leading these discussions what would a gold standard of this look like or how would you see that playing out well are there any mechanisms or arenas where you feel this is flourishing now or examples of organizations or groups that are doing this well? So maybe seeing as I've been talking about counter and violent extremism, I can talk about that a little because, you know, the best practice of that, I think, is especially um, work done, especially by a person called Daniel Kohler, who I've, I've interviewed in the past, um, who's based in Germany. But he, he sees that that space is very much operating in a spectrum, that there's, you know, individual level work that can be done, there's group level and there's society level and then, you know, there's different roles as well for different actors. There's, there's roles for the state, obviously. There's roles for community groups. And there's roles for family and friends and other individuals. And actually, there's a whole suite of different things that can be done across that spectrum. And the, the, the state activity, um, you know, with strong intervention is only one part of it. You know, the, the state can also be involved in, in counter-narratives and, you know, some of the work like Give Nothing to Racism is an example of that, the, the campaign over the last couple of years to enforce and to enliven and empower a social norm around intolerance to, to explicit racism. This, this person, Daniel Kohler, also goes way down to the, the group level and he works a lot with terrorists, uh, both uh, white supremacists and um, radical um, jihadis and and engages with their families, um, coaches their families through reintegration um, processes, often stands in the background sort of guiding them through reconnecting, you know, encouraging them to ask about the well-being of, of the person who's been radicalized and finding ways of bringing them out of the ideological bubble and back into, you know, a sort of civic reality. And, you know, he works with sports sports groups and, 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 and all sorts of community groups and 
you, you know, there's just a whole suite of, of different interventions that can be done, um, and, and New Zealand really hasn't been thinking along in those terms whatsoever. For me, the things that come to mind aren't necessarily the big sort of institutional things like government or media. I mean, we've sort of touched, I think, on some of the challenges in those, uh, in those areas already. It's, it's more been the experience of, I'm not trying to be uh, trite or flatter you here, but, but I mean, genuinely, we, we have a room full of people who have turned up to hear what I hope has been a useful conversation about an issue which I think really matters. And, and the fact that I think these kinds of things go on all the time um, in many, many places, and you, kind of, you wouldn't know it necessarily from the way that a lot of our public discourse goes. The, the other thing that sort of, again, comes to mind for me is it, it's those sort of encounters that are had on the, on the personal level, and again, you don't necessarily see this. Um, but I'll just give two examples of this to, to close. I remember being at a conference in Wellington a few years ago, um, which ironically was all about uh, inclusion, and uh, it, was, it was hosted by the Treasury. And it's one of those things where you look around the room and it's sort of the, the typical profile of the Wellington bureaucrat, and, you know, which might sound unkind. But I was talking to somebody at, at the table with me um, who, was, you know, who was saying, look, I, I come here, we talk about inclusion, um, and we talk about engaging with the community. The only reason I have any contact with the community is because I coach a rugby league team out in Porirua. And if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for that, I would be completely in the Wellington bubble. But you see things like that where people are doing those kinds of things and say, yeah, it's happening. Um, and then a bit closer to home for me, I, I talked earlier about sort of finding myself in, in some spaces that were unfamiliar and therefore uncomfortable to me as I was learning to do Māori. I've been fortunate enough, and Maxon's been fortunate enough, to have some people who have been uh, gracious and willing to have with us what, what they call awkward conversations. My experience has been of, of sort of going into settings like this and saying, there's so much I don't know here. Uh, would you please teach me? Would you please educate me? Would you please help me understand and being received with grace and hospitality and generosity and patience? And I think... Those are all amazing things in and of themselves. But what also strikes me about it is these, without wanting to stereotype, you're often talking about a scenario here where actually these communities, these families, bear the brunt of being gracious and hospitable and extending understanding over and over and over again, and they continue to do it. And I think when you see that, that's the kind of thing that makes me genuinely hopeful about the possibility of mutual understanding um, and relationship of the kind that I think we need to underpin all of these debates that we have about free speech, hate speech, at a level which I think could be really divisive. But these kind of social and civic interactions, I think, uh, give me hope that we can actually have these conversations in a different way. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more from us and to keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can also follow us on Facebook and check out videos on our YouTube channel. Just search Maxim Institute on any of those platforms. From the team at Maxim Institute, Matewa, goodbye for now.